0: you would open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Our text for this morning is found in verses 4 through 8. Having covered the prologue, verses 1 to 3 last week, we enter into this greeting. Followed by a benediction and followed by a doxology in verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God, and to his Father. The book of Revelation is filled with iconic verses that rise up out of the text and just seem to stab you in the heart whenever you read them. And one of those verses for me is found in chapter 12, a chapter that describes the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, who declares war upon the saints of God. And in his furious wrath... The dragon seeks to deceive and to devour and to destroy the church which Christ has purchased with his own blood. But in the middle of this chapter of war and affliction and persecution, we find this statement. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives even unto the death. I've always been captivated by that verse. You want to overcome Satan? Here's how they did it. They overcame Satan by doctrine. That is why the accuser of the brethren who accuses them day and night before our God, which is the verse just preceding verse 11 That's why his accusations failed. Because the saints knew that they were infallibly justified by grace through faith because of the blood and righteousness of the Lamb. Therefore they knew that no accusation which Satan could bring against them would stand. They knew what Paul declared in Romans chapter 8 to be true. Who shall bring a charge against one of God's elect?" God is the one who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who is raised. Who is seated at the right hand of God. Who always makes intercession for us. They overcame the accusations of Satan through faith in the blood of the Lamb. Through faith in the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice of Christ. And so can you. You can overcome Satan by gospel truth held firmly in the heart. They overcame Satan by their declaration. They testified to the gospel of the glory of Christ even in the midst of horrendous sufferings and tribulations. So no matter what the dragon threw at them, no matter what flood of suffering he swept over them, he could not silence the church of Christ. They just kept confessing their faith. You can conquer Satan with gospel truth declared boldly with the mouth. And they overcame Satan by death. See, just as Christ conquered Satan by death, so do His saints when they choose faithfulness and martyrdom over cowardice and self-preservation. There is no more powerful testimony to the glory of Christ than someone who is not afraid to die because of the faith and the hope and the joy that they have in Him who conquered death and is alive forevermore. You can conquer Satan by loving Jesus more than you love this momentary mortal existence. Now for those of us who have spent the entirety of our lives living in relative comfort, free from the threat of persecution and far removed from those corners of the world where the saints are like sheep to be slaughtered, they're being put to death all day long, it can be kind of difficult for us to envision what this looks like. What does Revelation twelve eleven look like worked out in the life of a persecuted saint? What does it look like to overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony and by not loving our lives even when faced with death? So I thought I would begin this morning by giving you an example of Revelation 12, 11 from the not so distant annals of church history. You may be familiar with the story of Joseph Sone, T-S-O-N, who was a Romanian pastor who ministered for years behind the Iron Curtain in the dark days of Soviet communism in the country of Romania. Sone was a pastor of the Second Baptist Church in Aradia, Romania until 1981 when he was exiled by Nicolai Cuscu's regime. He returned to Romania after its liberation 10 years later in 1991 and has since become one of the nation's top evangelical leaders. And in the fall of 2009, he wrote an article which appeared in that edition of To Every Tribe magazine. And in that article, he recounted some of the encounters that he had with the communist leaders back in the year 1974. He writes this, Six senior officials sat behind a long table on that first day back in October 1974, their uniforms spotless and their faces grave. They wanted to carry out a most serious ceremony. My indictment for, quote, creating propaganda that endangers the security of the state. Actually, what I had done was to write a paper entitled, The Place of a Christian in a Socialist State. I had analyzed how communism in my beloved nation of Romania had failed to produce the new man so predicted by Marxism. 30 years of trying and still we had so many problems. The alternative, I said in the end, was Christ, for he alone could change human nature. Well, the communist authorities did not appreciate that, and so my house was searched and my entire library was confiscated. And now I sat on a chair before the secret police tribunal. A colonel began a speech. He reminded me that I could face up to 15 years in prison. What about Romans 13, he asked with a flourish. Isn't it written there that the authorities are ordained by God? I couldn't keep silent. Sir, I interrupted, would you let me explain how I see Romans 13 in this situation? He smiled ever so slightly. Maybe he was curious. All right, go on. What is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. His expression grew puzzled. My God is teaching me a lesson. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sir, that you will do to me only what he wants you to do and you will not go one inch further because you are simply an instrument of my God. He did not like that interpretation of Romans 13, but I did. To see those six pompous men as my father's puppets, they immediately consigned me to six months of interrogation, five days a week, sometimes up to ten hours a day. But in the end, I was right. I learned a great deal. And he goes on in the article to describe what those six months were like as he went toe-to-toe with a police interrogator whose job it was to break him down and to turn him into a police informant against the other Romanian churches and against his fellow believers. Four years later, he found himself again in a prolonged season of persecution and finally, He was sent to the Romanian capital of Bucharest, where he appeared before the minister of the interior, who was also the head of the Romanian secret police. He writes, he sat down in front of his desk and immediately began to unleash the most violent language I had ever heard. He called me leper, scum, dog, and a number of other names. Then he announced, you're going to be shot, but first I want you tortured so you will curse all that you hold sacred and holy. He ordered two officers in the room to take me back to the interrogation building. There in that familiar room where I had spent so many days answering questions, a major whom I knew well was waiting. You see, Mr. Soane, he began in a soft and friendly tone, your situation is very serious. I think they're going to shoot you, but why don't you do something to avoid that? If... Somehow they only sentence you to a long prison term. Instead, there, there might be amnesty someday and you could go free. But if they shoot you, well, that's the end. Well, what do I have to do to avoid being shot? Well, he said hesitantly, you know, I, I do not speak as an official. I can only tell you my opinion." I think that if you were to write a statement confessing that all those papers of yours were written at the command of your masters in the West, and if you ask for forgiveness and promise not to do that again, that they will spare your life. Clearly, he was part of the plot. I smiled and said, what you offer me is spiritual suicide. I would rather accept a physical death. To tell you the truth, I don't see any reason to save my own life. Go on, shoot me. I cannot fully describe the man's fury at that moment. He suddenly realized the whole plan to break me had failed. They did not torture me then. In fact, I found out later they already had a presidential order that day to set me free, thanks to pressure from abroad. They only wanted to see if one last threat would make me their slave. Why did I say I did not need to save my life? Here is why. During an earlier interrogation at Ploiesti, I had told another officer who threatened to kill me, Sir, let me explain to you how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. And here is how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know that I died for my preaching, and everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached, because he must have really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than they did before. I would actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. He sent me home. Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, We know that Mr. Sone would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile. Because I wanted badly to live, I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach wherever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. And now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. I was right that first day of interrogation. The Lord had taught me many lessons during those trying hours. How does somebody get to that point? How do they get to the point where they are no longer afraid to die? The point where, in fact, death no longer appears to them as loss but as gain? How does one get to the point where they would rather accept torture and the pains of death rather than to deny Christ in order to save their own skin? How do they get to that place? Well, among other things, they read the book of Revelation. This book was written to convince us that Jesus is the triumphant king, that Satan is a defeated foe, that the reward for faithful perseverance is glorious, and that the cost of deserting Christ is great. Most of all, this book was written to captivate us with the matchless glory of Christ, such that we would rather die than to deny Him. And that is, I believe, the purpose of verses 4 to 8. The benediction and the doxology that we find in the midst of John's greeting to the seven churches. See, John did not have to include this description of Jesus, the structure of his argument does not need it. It's not essential to the flow of thought. He could, have, he could have transitioned quite easily from the prologue in verses 1 to 3 to the beginning of the first vision in verse 9 with only what we find in verse 4, the greeting to the seven churches. So why does he include this description of Jesus when in fact the very first vision is a vision of the risen and exalted Christ? It seems a little redundant, it seems a little superfluous, it seems a little unnecessary except that there is nothing in this God-breathed word that is without purpose. So what is it? Why does he take these descriptions of Jesus and just stack them one on top of the other at the very outset of this book? And I think it's for this reason. He is beginning to captivate us with the glory of Christ in order to prepare us to die if necessary, for Jesus. So this morning, I want to draw your attention to this this little passage at the beginning of the book of Revelation before we've even seen the first vision. This little passage that will give us seven brief glimpses into the glory of Christ in order that we would be prepared to die for Him. Number one. We catch a glimpse of Jesus here in His Trinitarian glory. John writes, beginning in verse 4, "...Grace to you and peace from Him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ." Him who is, and who was, and who is to come is a reference to God the Father, just as it is later on in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Father is described here by John in terms of his eternity and his omnipotence. He is and he has always been and he will always be. He is the Alpha and the Omega, which are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, signifying that He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end of all things. And He is the Almighty One, omnipotent and sovereign over His creation. Now these exalted designations of the Father will be filled out as we proceed through the visions of Revelation, as we see Him who is seated upon the throne, will begin to see what it means to be and to have been and to always will be. But for our purposes this morning, I want to point out this. The very same description of the Father found in verse 4 and verse 8 is used throughout the New Testament with reference to Christ. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday and today and forever, which corresponds to the him who is and who was and who is to come and speaks to eternality. And later in Revelation 22 and verse 13, Jesus describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. the point being this, clearly this Jesus shares in the Father's eternal attributes. Because he is God. The seven spirits who are before his throne is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Which too will become clear as we proceed through the pages of Revelation. And you will begin to detect that for John the number seven is highly symbolic. It, it projects the idea of completeness or fullness or perfection. Perfection. And the reference here, the seven spirits who are before the throne, comes from Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 to 9, where the Holy Spirit is said to give grace and to power to, to Israel who is about the task of rebuilding the temple. So the seven spirits are before the throne and are sent to the people of God for the purpose of rebuilding God's house. Thus, in verses 4 and 5, what we have is a catch, or we catch rather a glimpse of Jesus in His Trinitarian glory. We have the Son standing alongside the Father and the Spirit, sharing in their eternality and in their divine sovereignty together, bringing grace and peace to the seven churches of Asia, which represent the entirety of the church in these last days between the first and the second comings Of Christ. See I can die for this Jesus. Who is in the words of the Nicene Creed. Very God. Of very God. I'm going to struggle to give my life for an exalted man. Or an exalted angel. Or a created being of any kind. But I can die for the eternally sovereign son of God. And I can do so because of what He promises me. Second, we catch a glimpse of Jesus in His faithful testimony. In verse 5, the descriptions of Jesus begin. He is first the faithful witness. In John's Gospel, John 14, 6, Jesus referred to Himself as the way and the truth and the life. He told the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem in John 8.38, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. And again in John 12.49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me this commandment and what to say and what to speak. And in his high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus said to the Father, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. And so we see this flow of revelation throughout Jesus' own testimony, even in his earthly ministry. The Father, who I was with before this, has shown me and has told me what to show and to tell you, and I am not saying anything that I have not received from Him, which is why my testimony is true and it is trustworthy. And this is important because at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, John tells us what this is. This book purports to be the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants the things that must soon take place. Therefore... This book has a source. That source is the throne of the triune God. And everything that is revealed in this book can be trusted. And every promise that is made will come to pass. And every threat that is given will be fulfilled. The Lamb will triumph. Babylon will fall. The dragon and the beast and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. Christ will return. The dead will be raised. Judgment will come. Creation will be renewed. Sin will be defeated. Death will be destroyed. Those who worship the beast and receive his mark will be condemned. Those who remain faithful unto death will come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years in glory. If I am to live... And to die for Christ in these last days, I need to be utterly convinced that all that I've just said is true. And I can be because the, Jesus has spoken nothing but what he has seen and heard from the Father. He is the faithful witness of the revelation of God. Third, we catch a glimpse of Jesus in his resurrection power, he is the firstborn from the dead. I am not ready, nor willing, nor able to die for Christ until I am utterly convinced that He was dead and is alive forevermore, as He will say in verse 18. And that His resurrection is the source and seal of my own resurrection. I'm not willing to die for Christ until I am convinced that he will raise me up on the last day, and I'm not convinced that he will raise me up on the last day unless he has already conquered death and come marching out of the grave. So it's important to me that he's the firstborn from among the dead. There's so much truth wrapped up in this little phrase. It affirms, firstly, that Jesus is alive from the dead. That he has conquered sin and death and hell. That he has triumphed over the grave because it was impossible for the righteous one and the author of life to be held by its power. And it affirms secondly that the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the resurrection of all who are united to him by faith. Namely, me and you. This is what is meant by calling him the firstborn. Implying that he is, to borrow the phrase from Paul in Romans 8.29, the firstborn among many brothers. He's not the only one coming out of the grave. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. And many brothers will follow him out of death and into life and out of the grave and into glory. And there is tremendous persevering power in this truth. That will enable us to endure suffering and tribulation and torture and death. See this this life, this existence, this is just a vapor. It's just a mist. Here today and gone tomorrow when compared to the light of eternity. Just, Just a momentary wisp is your life. And yet... What you do with this momentary wisp determines what your eternal state will be. Take away my home and my possessions? You better be convinced that you're going to inherit the world. Someone threatens to take away your freedom and to cast you into jail. You better be convinced that you have eternal access to a city from which your captors will be forever excluded. Take away your life. You better be convinced that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that Jesus, in whom you have trusted, will raise you up on the last day. In other words, if Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and I am his younger brother by faith... Then there is no incentive that could be offered to me nor any threat made against me which could cause me to turn away and deny him. There's nothing that this life offers that can be compared to what he offers me. Fourth, we catch a glimpse of Jesus in his sovereign authority, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And this provides to the suffering and persecuted believer the assurance that nothing can happen which has not been predestined and planned for my eternal good and for God's eternal glory. Because Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, then we can respond to persecution in the same way that Jesus himself responded to Pilate. When Pilate asked in exasperation, Jesus was remaining silent like a sheep before its shearers, remember? And Pilate says, You won't speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to have you crucified? Remember how Jesus responded? You would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. Who's holding the strings? over the kings of the earth. Well, now all authority in heaven on earth has been given to the risen and exalted Son who reigns from the throne of heaven at the Father's right hand. And therefore, we can say to whatever earthly authority is at the bottom of those strings, you would have no authority over me had it not been granted to you from above. Had it not been granted to you by the sovereign Christ, you cannot lay a finger on me except that he has willingly or lovingly willed it from all eternity for my good and for his glory. For every possession that you take, for every ounce of pain that you inflict, I will be repaid a thousand times over when I stand before my king in glory. Jesus is holding the strings. And your persecutors, whoever they may be, they're just chess pieces. And he's the master. Fifth, we catch a glimpse of Jesus in his redeeming love. He is the one who has loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. What a statement. He loves us. He loves His people. He loves His saints. He loves His sheep. He loves me. And He loves you. And out of that love flows a determination to set us free from the slavery of sin. See, sin is slavery and it is, it is every bit as shameful and dehumanizing as the slave blocks that you've read about From centuries ago in Western Africa, in the days of European colonization, when people would be chained naked to be ogled and bought and sold by men as property. In fact, our slavery to sin is worse than that, because our slavery to sin is a willful bondage. Our depravity is such that we choose the chain. Humanity is a willing slave of sin and of Satan. But the deep, deep love of Jesus has stepped in and has paid the price for our redemption. He has offered Himself as the price of our freedom. He has taken our place on the slave block. He was stripped, naked, mocked, scourged, scorned, abused, beaten, and crucified. He gave His life his blood as the payment for the debt of sin that we owed to the justice of God. Blood was shed, ransom was paid, debts were secured, and we were freed. And all flowing out of love. That, beloved, is why tens of thousands Have died for Jesus. Why? Because they knew that he loved them. You're not ready to face tribulation until you know that he loves you. And has freed you from the slavery of sin. Do you know that he loves you? You know that he's taken your place, has paid your debt, has secured your ransom, provided for your freedom through his life and death and resurrection on the cross. You cannot overcome by the blood of the Lamb until you do. Sixth, we catch a glimpse of Jesus in his reconciling grace. What has love wrought? What, what is the effect of this purchase? Well, he has made us a kingdom and priests to his God and father, which is a quotation from Exodus nineteen six, in which God said to Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Which gives us a little introductory glimpse into John's understanding of the church as the new and true Israel. The church as the heirs of the promises made to Abraham, which surely will inform our interpretations of forthcoming passages like Revelation 7 and Revelation 14 that speak of the 144,000 of Israel who are sealed and belong to the Lamb. Those figures, number one, are not literal, they're symbolic. And number two, they do not refer to the ethnic nation of Israel, to the modern state of Israel, to the geographic region of Israel. They are a reference to the true Israel of God. Galatians 6:16. 6, All of those from every tribe, tongue, people and nation who were purchased for God at the cost of the blood of the lamb, who are sealed by his spirit and whom he has made to be a kingdom and priest to our God. We are the true Israel. We are the holy nation, we are the royal priesthood, the people for God's own possession, said Peter in 1 Peter 2, nine. And all because of the reconciling grace of Christ, who has reconciled sinners who were far off, He has brought them near to God at the cost of His blood. And now we are citizens and co-heirs of His kingdom, and we are priests who are welcome into His presence before the throne of grace with confidence to obtain mercy in our time of need. It is no wonder that John says, to Jesus belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Seventh, we catch a glimpse of Jesus in His returning majesty. Revelation 1 7 contains the first of many promises to the second coming of Christ. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. This verse combines two very prominent Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus. The first comes from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. The vision of the heavenly Son of Man who is coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And the second, every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him, comes from Zechariah 12.10. See, Jesus is the heavenly Son of Man from Daniel 7 who receives from the ancient of days dominion and glory and an everlasting kingdom filled with servants from all peoples and nations and tribes. And Jesus is the one who will return. And when all the tribes of the earth see him, they will mourn on account of him. Jesus quoted from the, that text in Matthew chapter 24, 29 to 31, in reference to his second coming. And if we take that and we combine it with the Zechariah 12.10 text, which speaks of this spirit of grace and of Repentance that are poured out upon Israel such that they mourn for Him at His coming. They weep bitterly and return to Him. We see the picture that is beginning to emerge here. Whether the mourning and the wailing of which John speaks here is the godly sorrow and repentance experienced by the church. That would, what it would seem from Zechariah's prophecy. Mourning resulting in repentance resulting in salvation. Salvation or whether it's mourning out of fear and dread at the sight of coming judgment, which will be experienced by the world, which seems to be the force of the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 6.15-17. to 17. It's unclear. But what is clear from this verse is that Jesus is coming, and that His return will be imminent. Behold, He is coming. Glorious with the clouds. Visible, it's not secret, every eye will see Him. Universal, every eye will see Him. Every tribe will mourn and it will be dreadful because all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Revelation 1-7 is our first glimpse into the news that Jesus is coming soon. And I, for one, don't want to be ashamed on the day of his appearing. I I want to be found faithful. Having overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of my testimony, and because I love Jesus more than I love this present life. See, this study in Revelation is not an academic exercise intended to sate our, our theological curiosities. This is life, and this is death, and eternity is at stake. What are we doing this morning in Revelation? What are we doing for for the next nine months in this book? I'll tell you what we're doing. We are preparing for persecution. We are training for tribulation. This Saturday, five of us will fly Out from Springfield, five from this church, two from Branson, and one from Nicaragua, and we're going to fly to Havana, which means we're going to be flying into the domain and realm of the beast, that place where Satan's throne is. Larry, do you remember when we were touring last time, do you remember what one of our translators said was located in the basement of the Capitol building there in Havana? The beast dwells on foreign fields. And we will be playing the role of the two witnesses from Revelation 11, testifying to the word of Christ and preparing a people for his appearing. And God only knows whether we will be protected from the enemy or whether we will be handed over to the beast in order that we may glorify God by our perseverance through tribulation. Now, I'm not intending to be mellow, dramatic this morning. I said something like this to Mike shortly before I left the first time, and he texted me a picture of Kurt Russell from Tombstone and told me to man up. All right, point taken. (laughs) So I will affirm that the degree of difficulty in this upcoming trip is minimal. We're in almost no danger. Almost. I'm not trying to play up the scenario in order to appear to you courageous because I'm not. There are real places that are really dangerous and real missionaries go there and we're not worthy to untie the straps of their sandals. And as for courage, I'll just tell you that I had, I had just a just a taste of real persecution 11 years ago in China, and I would be ashamed to tell you the story of how I cowered before it in fear, wanting, wanting not the glory of God, just wanting to go home. What I'm trying to emphasize to you and to show you is that this is not abstract theology, this is real. Anyone who steps foot on the mission field had better know how to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and by not loving their lives even when faced with death. And the only way to get to that point is to be captivated by the Jesus that is revealed in these seven visions. We're preparing for persecution. We're training for tribulation here. We're making missionaries in this book. This entire book this morning has existed in order that we may look at Jesus, be captivated by his glory, and love him more than we love everything else. So look at him.